Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about bankruptcy of what was supposed to be Canada's largest residential tower and a very kind of cool slash eerie phenomena called the skyscraper curse. I'm your host, Nick Hill, and today and every Tuesday and Friday, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Dan How's it going, Dan? I'm doing great, Nick. Far better than, I guess, the developer of this building. <laughs> Although, I mean, the reality is it's still a, a sweet landmark building, but it, it, this is one that's been talked about a lot, right? Is, um, it, is it weird that we're recording this basically on Halloween? Yeah, it is funny. <laughs> but I think, you know, there's been a lot of controversy around this project from the start, you know, between battles back and forth with their neighbor on the other side of, these are probably two, or this was probably the most notable site in Toronto for that period well, of time. Both of them as well, because it was yeah. the one and one. And I think one bluer, it ended up being a great golf project, but it like it went, it had some bankruptcy issues, I think, Changed before before they times. took it over. Yeah, so. Well, and then unfortunately, we we'll, and we'll get to this as we get into it, but like anchor tenant issues, man, talk about anchor tenant issues for both of them, right? So an anchor tenant is essentially, if you see building top signage or, or anything of that nature, or basically the largest tenant in your building, that is considered your anchor tenant. Very, very important in commercial real estate. So both of these buildings had massive retail sections in the bottom. We'll get to, uh, we'll get to the this one but the other one that left was nordstrom yeah i wouldn't want apple suing me apple i mean i wouldn't want nordstrom suing me either yeah <laughs> but and it's tough because like construction is not a linear game and it's hard to occupy space and so like for you know imagine you're building the tallest tower in a country and you have to deliver space to a massive multinational corporation for the it was supposed to be the largest apple store in the world and i'm sure it probably eventually will be honestly hopefully but you know i mean that retail unit's probably worth quarter billion oh, right oh my gosh crazy and so you know they have to get that uh, into the hands of that that Apple so they can do their interior fit out or whatever it is and anyway it seemed like there were some headaches with that and then I, I guess further headaches around lending etc capital stack a lot of headaches yeah but yeah there's a lot of, a lot of really interesting journalism around it and and it, it's just been a project that everybody's known of for a long time and there's been a lot of bankruptcies happening in the development space by the way like this is not it's not the only one by no. any means it's just a big one and it's it's always it's been talked about for a variety of other reasons so everybody kind of latched onto it when it happened and and in Canada we're we, we're we're smaller, right? So we're not like the states where there's massive bankruptcies happening in, in many major markets on like a weekly basis, it seems, right? I mean, if you follow certain news outlets like The Real Deal, which is fantastic out of, uh, I believe, out of New York, you know, they, they've been covering all this crazy stuff that's been going down in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, Miami, whereas we only have a few markets that are big enough where big things can go big wrong. And big wrong. That's what we're going to be covering today. <laughs> but before we do that, Dan, what, what's been going on? You and I both been busy lately i know yeah doing deals land bank Surprising. side of things yeah, yeah land bank's we, good we've got some big stuff going on in winnipeg we've got some stuff going on in windsor and the east coast like we've been moving and shaking across the yeah. country yeah yeah awesome. working on the acquisition side I, I think there's a lot of uh a lot of sharks out there looking for some blood um a lot of people looking at vendor take back deals because there's i mean i've been charting this like the instances of vendor take backs being offered on the mls um are higher than they ever have been ever and 
record. And so, you know, if you're looking, if you're, if, if a lender is what's standing in the way of you buying your next real estate investment and you feel the pricing environment is right, which I don't personally yet, but you might, and you, you know, you, you're also in control of the pricing. You can negotiate a better deal for yourself. A VTB can, can really help. Actually, we did a whole episode on that. It's called how VTBs can make every, every deal better, but. And we did that way before VTBs were the new buzzword. Yeah. And I, and we actually kind of anticipated this happening because we were saying, you know, VT, a lot of people were offering in the nineties during that last that counter cycle, uh, vendor take back mortgages. They were offering to hold paper, hold a mortgage. Mm-hmm. The owner of the property, if, you know, if you're an owner and you say, "Oh, I think there's a recession coming," or "I don't, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want to deal with the landlord and tenant board or whatever. I'm just going to sell this thing, but I, I'll, I'll keep collecting passive income as a lender on the deal." It would be logical for you as an owner to put your property up with a vendor take back mortgage. And a lot of people are doing that. And there's a tax advantage as well. Tax Maybe. advantage, and not only that, but especially if you are in, let's say, a bit more of a unique style of property, whether it be raw land, vacant land, any kind of property with multiple zoning or multiple buildings on it, let's say a commercial and residential mix or something like that. Anything that's just a little bit more complicated that's going to present a bit more of a roadblock these days, that's where you're going to find a great time to offer a VTB. Anyways, Let's dive into today's episode because I'm really excited about this. You know, some people go on vacation to, to Mexico. My girlfriend and I like going on vacation to New York because I love cities and I Come specifically back with a sore neck from just looking. Literally, at I, I yeah. actually do, and it's it's, yeah, it's, it's almost borderline annoying to travel with me to these places. Probably because I'm like, look at this building, look at that building, look at this building, and I can't help but I, I just love the skyscrapers and I love the history behind them, especially in places like New York and Chicago, which really started the skyscraper movement and what we kind of know today. So on that note, today we're going to be diving into an intriguing concept that's a bit of a non-traditional way of gauging economic trends and kind of predicting potential financial crises. We talk a lot about indexes on this show, but we haven't mentioned this one yet, and that is the skyscraper index. It's a fascinating topic, and we think you, our listeners, can likely go read about it a bit more if you want to on Wikipedia, because we're going to be discussing a few things and a few pulling from a few different academic papers here. So the first is the skyscraper and business cycles. Then we're going to be looking at the return of the skyscraper, uh, and that's from the Asia Sentinel. And then we're going to be looking at the skyscraper curse, which is a great book by Mark Thornton. So Dan, do you want to kick things off by explaining what the hell the skyscraper index even is? Yeah. So the skyscraper index is an interesting economic concept. And it's basically this tongue in cheek theory that suggests a correlation between the construction of super tall skyscrapers and financial crashes starting as early as the panic of 1907, which visual capitalists did a really good visual on this. And actually, Nick and I have been putting out YouTube videos mostly so that we can cut them into reels really easily to try and promote the podcast. But um, if you're following us on on uh, on YouTube or on on uh, some platform that has video, um, first of all, we'd appreciate that's a that's a, a direct order. Please no, but, do it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you know, check it. Follow us. Give us a follow on Instagram. Um, we should put that in the show notes, actually. Mm. And uh, but yeah, there's a, there's some there's a cool. Um, infographic by visual capitalists about this shows like the building and then the stock chart uh, going over the building and the timing of the building and the crash. So anyway, the basic idea is that when you see an enormous skyscraper being built, it could be a sign that we're in an economic bubble that might burst soon. You know, this goes back to another obscure index that I know we, we have touched on the show multiple times and the fear and greed index. And I feel like that's probably closely aligned 
to the skyscraper index. Yeah. If we've got some time, Dan, we should we should overlay those indexes at some point well, and, and follow that. Trend. I think it is like you see it's it's the the crash happens when you flip from the greed to the fear, right? Exactly. And, and the thing with large projects is they take a long time. So, you know, you would go and do your all you would spend all of your money on these major architecturals and engineering and all of this stuff during the the greed portion during the the, the bull market, the run up, and you would be securing financing and when nothing can possibly go wrong, the economy is amazing, right? During this um, amazing bull market. And then, uh, you know, the construction starts during and, and the late you know, stage of the bull market. Yeah, and, and one blur is a great example of this. I mean, like the project was, you know, it, it could have just been a timing thing. If the project was complete by now, like they would have liquidated all of their capital, their entire capital stack Apple by selling all this. Apple would be in the Hyatt, which is the hotel portion. Mm-hmm. This is another thing about the Mizrahi thing. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, the capital stack has like $1.3 billion owing on it. And the, and the pre-sales are like less than that. Or Except they were like 1.6 to 1.3 or, yeah, or something. Well, yeah. But they also have, again, like that Apple store is probably worth a quarter billion. Yeah. And the Hyatt is like 40 stories or something like yeah. that. So there, I don't think they're as underwater as a lot of people want to imagine, right? But some people just want to watch the world burn. And I, I'm usually one of those people, <laughs> I but I like, yeah. but in the interest I of- a fire extinguisher. But in the interest <laughs> of, of truth, I just don't know if, like, I mean, the project's going to get done, right? Yeah, and Mizrahi's no staying on as the developer because he's the most qualified the 40 guy to story do, right? building yeah. just sit there, yeah. 40% complete. Right. So- Anyway, give me the idea of this, uh, the, the guy, Andrew Lawrence, who kind of came up with this. Right, thing. right. Yeah. So so this theory was first proposed by Andrew Lawrence, an analyst from Dresden, Klinwat Wasserstein. That's there you a, go. A bit of a mouthful. And that was back in 1999. The skyscraper index gained some notoriety as people began to notice that many of the world's tallest towers were completed just before or during economic downturns. Exactly. So it is kind of fascinating. According to some of the research that we did, the notable examples would be like the Empire State Building in New York, which was completed during the Great Depression. So it probably would have been started again and and funded during that ambitious run up prior. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which was built just before the global financial crisis in 2008. And then currently we do have actually a tower under construction that is to beat the Burj Khalifa, which is the Kingdom Tower in In Jeddah, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And it's supposed to be the first one kilometer tall tower, which is just (laughs) wild. Super cool looking. looking, And actually, so there's, it's, it's kind of fascinating while we're getting into these ridiculously tall and I, I'm I like architecture but I, so take I all this with super it. tall yeah. so I can't help it like I love architecture so just but but I don't I don't really know what I'm talking about but for my so for the architects listening out yeah, there apologies <laughs> but this the reason these two structures I think are built with this like they're almost shaped like, like a Mercedes logo like the pointed three is mm. like F- Frank Lloyd Wright actually designed this thing called the, the Illinois which was like, he actually believed that you could have like an entire city living in this building. And they mm-hmm. both, they both look very much like this. If you Google it, Google the Illinois Frank Lloyd Wright. I think it was Frank Lloyd Wright who came up with it, but it was supposed to be in Chicago. Cause that is actually, you said New York, but it's actually Chicago where that was the birthplace of the skyscraper. Yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, he had this vision for that, that this was engineerable and his, his, he wanted, I think it was, he wanted it to be a mile high. So 1.6 kilometers tall. Yeah, yeah. And he, and he fully felt that this thing was completely engineerable, but both of those two towers, the Kingdom Tower and the Burj Khalifa came much after, but they were very much inspired by this idea of the Illinois that Frank, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright came out with. I mean, just incredible. I mean, these things, again, going back to just my time recently in New York, right? You look at Billionaire's Row and, and some of the super talls there, and you start to look at the engineering and not just the architecture, but the engineering behind these 
these buildings is is insane especially these new ones they literally have aerodynamic systems suspension systems like it's it's next level but anyways we digress it is incredible how these giant structures can serve as a potential economic indicator who would have thought and this theory suggests that skyscrapers might symbolize excessive optimism in the economy let's build something a kilometer high because nothing could ever go wrong and of course that could lead to unsustainable real estate booms and again what happens after that subsequent financial crashes yeah it's like we can't as participants in the economy we can't be trusted to just like do things in moderation (laughs) you know it's like let's oh like oh things have been good for five years like let's build the biggest tower in the world and then (laughs) and then that just these are they're basically just like monuments to the excess of that period of time right and they keep getting bigger which is even funnier so i I mean it's not obviously not a foolproof prediction tool and and there are many record-breaking skyscrapers that fell in between or outside of economic cycles we're going to talk about the cn tower because it obviously was a record breaker but it's more of an observation of historical patterns and it's fun right like it's it's It's, cool to be having fun today guys and i'm glad you mentioned that dane because it's essential for you our listeners to understand that well there have been instances of uh the skyscraper index that hold true there's obviously many cases that didn't right it's not every time someone builds a tall building we you know the economy crashes there are numerous factors that influence economic crashes besides skyscraper construction so let's be very clear about that before we move on so the it is it's an interesting point because the economy and economic systems are very complex, right? There are many variables at play and not just residential construction. There's a similar index actually that ranks the quality of IPOs and it says that yeah. like IPOs keep getting worse as you get well, closer yeah, to the Well, yeah, we touched on this. Remember the unicorns, all the unicorn yeah. companies that came out that yeah. most of them weren't even profitable? Right. So it's an interesting idea, but it's not obviously a, a substitute for rigorous economic analysis and forecasting. We could use the CN Tower as an example since it's conveniently Canadian and the tallest was the tallest building in the world for a long time until that record was broken by the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Dubai also stole our record for the largest shopping mall in the world. Thanks, Dubai. That used to be the West Edmonton Mall. Let's take a closer look at the CN Tower in the context of this theory. As we mentioned, it's not a traditional skyscraper, right? You can't live on the 45th floor of the CN Tower. However, it is probably the most iconic Canadian building and was initially and probably still is the most ambitious structure ever built in Toronto. It's probably also the reason why uh, none of these super talls in Toronto ever end up getting actually super mm. tall because nobody wants to obstruct that like you can't that be skyline. looking down on the CN Tower. Well, but That's like if they're weird. far enough away from it yeah. in the skyline, it could be okay, right? But anyway, so it is a fascinating case. It was completed in 1976 at a time when Toronto and Canada in general were still experiencing significant economic growth. It stood as the tallest freestanding structure in the world for over three decades. Wow, that yeah. is impressive. So if we consider the skyscraper index's premise, which suggests that the construction of massive skyscrapers might be a signal of impending economic crises. We might expect the CN Towers completion to coincide with a financial financial downturn. However, that wasn't the case. That's correct. The CN Tower was not an indicator of an economic bubble or subsequent crash. Instead, it served, served as a symbol of progress and economic growth, reflecting Toronto's ambitious and confidence during a period of prosperity. Love that. As a proud Torontonian, it's a testament to the complexity of economic and urban development. Well, the skyscraper index can provide an interesting perspective 
it's important to recognize that not all iconic structures are directly tied with economic crashes, right? You don't just build a big building and boom, the economy goes. The CN Tower, for instance, was more of a reflection of Toronto's emergence as a global city and a nod to the country's economic achievements thus far. Yeah, and I think, you know, during that period of time, I guess that would have been like the 70s era of stagflation. The, the towers that ended up kind of marking the, the, the peaks there were your World Trade Center um, and then the Willis Tower. And then the CN Tower was kind of built after the big drop heading into that stagflation. Um, and it could have been it could have been committed to and financed prior to that drop. Um, it, you know, there's really no way to know without no, knowing all of the, the details. It was all, also obviously a very long construction project. Um, but it is interesting, especially in the context of stagflation, because I think that that's something that we could potentially see. Uh, and we discussed this in, in the course, and I've discussed it in a couple of the economic updates that I've provided. In episode one, we go through 80s versus 90s housing corrections. And if the 90s housing correction would be a real recession, the 80s housing correction would be a response to stagflation, because 81 was after that period of the 70s stagflation. Stagflation is when you see an economy in contraction, so GDP going down, but an unemployment rising, but then also um, inflation still going up, mm-hmm. and and that is actually a potential outcome right now. Scary, um, and so, but but during that period of time, we really did see Canada start to play a larger role in the global economy because we're very commodities based economy, or we were at that point. So I think hopefully we'll see Canada start to diversify economically into that a little bit. But anyway. Should we should we chat a little bit on whether or not the skyscraper index is even a good analytical tool, other than being fun? Absolutely, yeah. Let's let's shift gears a bit and discuss some of the criticisms and alternative viewpoints related to this fascinating index here. So the common criticism is that it might be subject to confirmation bias, right? People tend to remember that instances where skyscrapers were followed by an economic crisis and forget the ones where it wasn't. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's also important to remember that building a skyscraper is a massive long-term project that literally takes years and years to complete. I remember, you know, we've been hearing about the one, which is what we're really kind of talking about today for over a decade. So it's important to remember that economic conditions can change significantly during those times as well, right? So it's challenging to attribute market crashes solely to a skyscraper being completed or, you know, or in this case, not completed. You know, we we talk a lot about economics and, and business cycles on this show. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes these large buildings probably just line up at the wrong time. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a purely macro thing, right? Like, I mean, Toronto, 08 would be a decent example. Like Toronto was a, a market where you know, our economy was relatively strong while the rest of the world was like kind of burning down. Right. And, and we were still doing a lot of significant projects. And so it, it, I don't know how well it matches on a, on a um, localized basis as well. Like you kind of have to, have to reconcile for the fact that it's both a macro and a micro factor, why somebody might build buildings. Right. So, you know, they can often be driven by urbanization, land scarcity, or even prestige. Right. For sure. And I think, I think, you know, it's funny that the, the fear and greed index, and again, this, this, I think they both have a little part to play because prestige, especially from, you know, the large scale developers out there, that definitely plays a role. Well, like, I think the CN Tower was basically like a vanity tower. Like, it doesn't do anything other than what do you like. mean? It rotates. Right. And serves food. And I think it's got like <laughs> telecommunications masts on the roof and stuff. Yeah, but exactly. like, That's but why like, I can make phone calls downtown. <laughs> yeah. And there's a restaurant and like, 
and uh, concrete. You yeah, know, a lot of but, concrete. Yeah. Elevator. There's an elevator. Actually, what, before we move on here, did you? See, there, I can't remember which architect it was, but they did like this thing called the parasitic CN Tower, where they like remodeled it as if there were residential pods coming off of it. No, it's super cool. I'll I send need it to see you. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's worth noting that many successful and economically stable cities around the world obviously have iconic skyscrapers as well, and that those skyscrapers can be symbols of growth and ambition rather than, of course, impending doom. And so the skyscraper index is obviously a thought-provoking concept uh, that offers an alternative perspective to, on economic cycles. And it's fun to discuss, and it's and it's it's cool little uh, piece of, what do we call that, cocktail party economics from our uh, university professor to bust out, right? Like, yeah. you know, to now that next time you hear somebody talking about this at a party, you can be like, really is, talking about Mizrahi or whatever, any skyscraper, you can be like, oh, did you know? This is you great, be that guy. Yeah, this is great social currency, guys. So take it and use it. Yeah. So, yeah, the idea is that, you know, it, it's funny and it's, but it, it I would take it with a grain of caution. Don't just be like, oh, I see a skyscraper is being built. Going to go uh, short, short, market. <laughs> short everything, lever up and buy some VIX calls or whatever. So economic forecasting requires a lot of a lot of factors. And so just looking at what's happening to the skyline would be a little bit myopic. Yeah. Well said, Dan. And, and again, for everyone listening, we encourage you to go check out the Wikipedia page and some of the other academic reports based off of this stuff. And Mark Thornton's book, The Skyscraper Curse and How Austrian economists predicted every major crisis of the last century go check that stuff out and, and form your own opinion what we try to do on the show is provide you as much information as we can from every different angle so that you can formulate your own opinion and your own thesis so let's quickly actually go through this project at one blower since we've you know we've talked a lot about it do you want to do you want to take a look at this this cn tower thing that i showed you it by looks the way? like so the it was, cn tower is like sick it looks yeah, it's like called it's um <laughs> Oh, it was Quadrangle who did it, um, but it was it was just like a, a joke, right? But, yeah, very um, cool. Yeah, though. it was cool. They basically made it like you could pop all these wood like wood pods basically off the side of the CN Tower. And it looks like it, it looks again like uh, if you take you know something that's been in the water for a long time. Yeah, and yeah, the barnacles. Yeah, it does look like, it looks like the so, CN Tower yeah, has been submerged in the sea for well a said. while. I, I was like, I actually emailed them. I was like, could you do this to the Sudbury Superstack? Because <laughs> this, which is the second tallest structure yeah. in Canada. Yeah. Again, not residential. Not residential. You don't want to be living in that. Well, maybe once it's decommissioned, like, you know, pop some pods on the side of it, like some barnacles. (laughs) Anyway, so so let's look at one blower. Just a quick uh, overview of the project. So this was was to be the tallest residential tower in Canada. It... I, I think there are a couple of applications out for ta- for taller towers now, mm-hmm. like uh, one pinnacle, one, pinnacle one young, yeah, which um, is at the base of Young Street. They're always at number one, right? It's yeah, I guess the guess. starting of every street is of like course. really prime real estate. That makes sense. And, and they that say developers out. don't have egos, and it's not about prestige. Yeah. So the category was, I guess, re- it was going to be a residential hotel. So there was, I think, it was. Was it Hyatt? That was supposed was, to be I believe area. it was Hyatt. Yeah, I think Hyatt had. And then an Apple store on the ground floor. Yeah. Um, it's under construction right now. And it was to be 1,077 feet tall, 328 meters, making it a super tall, 91 stories yeah. and 475 units. The developer was Mizrahi Developments. The architect was Foster and Partners and Core Architects. And the landscape architect was the planning partnership. So, I mean, obviously a, a notable project for the city of toronto it was going to be well it's still going to be it's going to get done it's super cool exoskeletal design like really really sexy building and and i think it'll be it'll be like it'll really feel like a win for the city when it actually gets topped out and and not only that but if you're from toronto you know the area and if you're listening in in other parts of canada it's so this is this is right on bloor street which is a 
which is kind of like where all like the nice shops are like it's it is there are office space up there like you go you do have some other towers but they're they're probably capped out at like i don't know 40 stories up there for the for some of the other office towers but you've got you know your rolex stores and your chanel stores yeah like where and, people pay, take pictures of their lambos in front of like yeah a yeah store it's, or it's like it's the sexy rich part of it's it, in toronto it's right outside of yorkville um so again a lot of prestige a lot of uh uh, again, and, and this thing has been going back and forth for 10 years. So it's it's 91 stories, but that wasn't what it originally was proposed. It was actually proposed for less than that. But then the other developer, uh, is it was a great golf or first golf on the... It's great golf, but... Great golf, um, yeah. So great golf on the other side, literally across the street. And again, was taller, right? So. Was taller. So, of course, these two developers that had almost the same name as the buildings, The One and One. No, I think it was One Bluer. They one, changed it to, right? One Bluer, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so One Bluer. But, so that's, and that's because Young Street breaks them up, so it's east and west. Yeah. And, uh, of course, these two, it's like the two big kids, you know, trying to see who's bigger, right? Mike, may, Mike makes right in this case. And, uh, anyways, One Bluer was completed years ago. Again, I love the design on it. It almost looks kind of like aquatic with like, like almost like a wave cascading yeah, very, on the outside. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, curvy. Yeah, nice and curvy. But again, it has not been without its own issues as well, right? We just said Nordstrom vacated hundreds of thousands of square feet of ground floor grade A retail in there. Yeah, for sure. And I, I guess we can quickly go through, like, even just from the Wikipedia, I'm just trying to think of, like, stuff you can say that's actually public, given both of our professions in the right. industry. But, uh, right. but it, you know, from the Wikipedia page, they have some information about the, the the rounds of financing. So they did a round of financing for, like, $135 million in 2017. Then they opened their presentation center, and then they, they brought on a uh, special crane in 2018, which was the highest capacity crane deployed in Toronto. So, you know, big wins, lots of big yeah, wins. Yeah. And, and, and again, definitely a marketing oriented development company. So it, a lot of this stuff was very public. 2019, it was to include a 160 room and as hotel expected to open in 2022, which did not happen. And then 2019, the one secured a new round of financing through IGIS Asset Management Co. lending $560 million to the project. And 2019, a mock-up was installed to physically illustrate their brushed aluminum and glazed cladding. And then construction was halted in 2019. The City of Toronto issued a stop work order on the site. In August 31st of 2020, the building was issued a conditional above-grade permit from the City of Toronto, allowing the above-grade construction to begin. So lots going on. January 2021, projects underway and Mizrahi Developments applied for or applied through an addendum for height increase to the 94 stories. So I guess that's what you were mentioning with mm-hmm. a planned height of 338 meters. Uh, and in June of 2023, so earlier this year, they approved the final height of 91 stories in 328.4 meters. In October of 2023, almost a year after, past the planned December 2022 completion date, the condo was put into receivership by lenders who claimed necessary payments had not been made. So, so you don't, I mean, you don't want to go into receivership, right? It's a uh, receivership is a remedy available to secured creditors to recover amounts of outstanding debt under a secured loan in the event the company defaults on its loans. Not something you want to be in the news for. No. At no. all. <laughs> this is bad receivership. Not like, uh, not like football. When you're yeah. receiving, this isn't your. There's no wide receiverships no. in here. Okay? No. <laughs> Before we move on, Dan, I, I and when you pitched us, to, when you pitched us to do this this episode here, I was like, okay, yeah. well, we got to. We talk, just talk about random tall buildings. I was like, we got to talk about the, and I'm gonna mess this up. The Ryu Guang, Ryu Yong Hotel, something like that. Kind of. 
This is like the poster child for evil buildings. Literally. So go look this one up. R Y U G Y O N G. Uh, it's a hotel in a lovely part of the world, very welcoming, North Korea. The building has been planned as a mixed-use development, which would include it because they all include Wait, planned. Hotels. It's not done. So um, the hotel was planned to open in 2012. And uh, all these years later, it is still not open. Uh, they actually halted in 1992. It's um, been under construction for a while. For man. a long time. It's it's a very cool design. Very but, cool design. For but sure. the it basically looks like a big Pyramid? kind of like multi pyramid. It looks like something you'd see almost in Vegas, like a, yeah. like a new casino, but not this tall. Yeah, it goes literally all the way back to March of two thousand and four when the building itself was actually like almost completed from the outside all concrete again this this literally could appear like of course the most evil country in the world has the most evil looking building in the world um and it's not complete and the construction of this thing has been an absolute nightmare the like the floors aren't level the elevator shafts aren't straight like it is just a complete disaster so now they've got this massive evil looking structure at least um, it looks cool honestly yeah i mean it does look cool yeah, I mean, and, I'm, and i'm sure it casts a really ominous commanding. shadow across everything but will this ever get completed my my guess is no especially if uh you know north korea keeps on going the way that they're going so anyways i just had to touch on on that i'm gonna go, use go that to segue that back out. to my illinois then because it, it does look like that that building has the same like if you were to look at it from above it would have that that three like yeah uh, it's like the three prongs yeah. kind of kind of look yeah. I, it, and i guess that that's like so so the illinois the one that i was talking about which is the illinois sky city he called it or the mile high illinois or simply the illinois is a visionary skyscraper that was proposed to be over one mile high Conceived and described by American architect Frank Lloyd Wright, little little well known guy. Yeah, heard of him before. Um, I think. In in his 1957 book A Testament, which I've read, and it's exceptional. The design intended to be built in Chicago included 528 stories and a gross floor area. This is crazy. A gross floor area of 18 million 460 thousand square feet. <laughs> Wright stated that there would be parking for 15,000 cars and 100 helicopters. 100 helicopters. Uh, if built, it would be it would top the list of the tallest buildings in the world by far, being more than four times the height of the Empire State Building and almost twice as large as the world's current tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, and about 24,000 feet taller than the planned Jeddah Tower, which we had mentioned earlier in this episode. The latter two both being designed by Adrian Smith, whose designs for both buildings are said to be inspired by that of the Illinois. And you can see, like, if you look at this, you got to check the the uh, Wikipedia out for this thing. It's just like, it looks like both of those towers, right? It really does. Yeah. yeah. It, it almost looks like like the first rendition of of the Burj. It, uh... Yeah. I mean, the Burj, the Burj doesn't look too far off of it. The Kingdom Tower is a little bit more modernized, but the interior, like the bones of it, from from what I've heard, are very similar to, to this Illinois. Yeah. So anyway, I guess we should maybe we'll wrap up with a little bit of housekeeping, just touch base on uh, with the audience. So we have we have meetups coming November 14th. We're in like 11 cities now, I think. Yeah, I think and, we're, uh, we really want to just get this community going in person. Like it, it's been amazing for, for anyone that's considering coming out to an event that that hasn't, whether, whether it's timing issues or whatever like that, I'd really recommend trying to prioritize getting out. There's, there's no, you have to have X number of doors or you have to be 
this type of investor. None of that matters. I, I've literally met people that that uh, have been in the country for for three weeks and are there to try to make friends and and try to make some business connections. I've also met people that have been investing for 15, 20 years that are much more <laughs> accomplished investors than you and I, Dan. And you know, it, it's it's in those rooms that that you will meet the people that that you need to get to the next step of whatever investing journey you're on right now. So I'd highly recommend to come out. I'll be at the one in Toronto uh, every month. Dan tries to come when he can. And eventually we'd like to start to be able to go back and, and physically attend the ones across the country. Yeah. And if you're nervous, like to go to a meetup, I would say we make ours like relatively unintimidating and uh, casual, which is like, I do think that one of the, the bigger complaints about some of these more formal meetups that are like at hotels or, you know, with, with speakers and presentations and whatever, um, they can be in- intimidating. So I get that. Um, what I would say is, um, ours are at, are typically at coffee shops or bars or whatever. And so if you show up and you're, you don't want to be there, you can just leave. <laughs> like, you yeah, know, or literally gonna... just go grab a table and yeah. be like, I'm not with that group. Anymore. Yeah. I don't know those no folks. Gonna, yeah, no one's going to say anything. Yeah. And, and so I think a lot of the people who have been going to our meetups have been really, really grateful in that respect that it's just, it's kind of more chill, right? Like it's really just, just casual yeah, we don't have to make it all fancy, fancy. No. I think, well, there's thing. just enough people doing that well in the industry already. And yeah. we found that there was a bit of a gap for more casual meetups. And so that's what we've been doing. And so, yeah, so we've got, we've got Vancouver, we got Calgary, Edmonton, Edmonton, Saskatoon is, is happening now. We're making we, some inroads in Winnipeg. Uh, yeah. We've got a couple in, in Ontario. So we've got uh, Toronto, Barrie and Kitchener-Waterloo. And then, um, We've got, but with Ontario, I mean, we look, we, we look at the demographics of, of the podcast all the time and, and so much love goes out to everyone because we are growing. We're at like literally 70,000 downloads a month right now and approaching the million, um, total download mark, which, which we'll keep you guys posted on. Cause that'll be a, a very big deal for Dan and I, there are so many places in Ontario that we know we have thousands of listeners that we don't have the infrastructure set up yet to host these events so if you are in kingston if you are in peterborough if you're in ottawa Sudbury, north bay london windsor if you're in any of those markets reach out and become one of the the people that helps get involved and set these things up i'm telling yeah. you it will pay dividends you will become associate like you don't we've got people helping us out that literally don't own one investment property and they are now becoming the face of the event and yeah. they're getting notoriety from it and they'll eventually get deals from it i can promise you that no it's an excellent opportunity to to, uh, to become a leader in your local real estate investing community and and to to help build a community like really that's our goal here like we I've mentioned this a couple of times but it literally costs us money to put these things on but we're more than happy to do it because it's people who are doing deals and they're getting deals through us or doing sorry doing deals as a result of what we're trying to put together and that's like really what we want to do so yeah I think that's that's it um, you want to wrap up here I see you scrolling through some fancy build, yeah, buildings just, so the, the, so we talked about the Kingdom Tower right which is the one that Dan's referenced this thing literally like half of it is in the clouds it's truly crazy crazy they're not even calling this one a super tall anymore they're calling it a mega tall which i guess is in if you watch sharknado you know that that's you megalodon you get up you know so over 600 meters that's a double the super tall cutoff. so super talls are 300 so meters. for context three like the one is just over 300 meters so one just counts as a super tall it'd be the it'd be a baby super it's crazy tall. like just looking at that image that you just pulled up there's so many tall buildings yeah so listen to this the building is so big that they are un- unable to show it realistically in one rendering only elevations of bird's eye views can contain the entire project 
Crazy. <laughs> oh, this is uh, this is fascinating. So, anyways, this has been a fun one, guys. Um, if you want to go look at some of these buildings, uh, go go look at them. If you want to invest in some of these buildings, do it with an air of caution because you you may be part of the prediction of the next uh, true. crash. So. Um, and, and actually on a, on a bit more of a real note there, I know that, uh, I can't, I don't know if you have the pre-con, um, numbers that were sold in there, but they, they still have to sell, I think. Yeah. There's still some units. Yeah. There's still some units being held back. And I think all of the people who've committed to contracts are still going to have to close on those units at some point, which is, it's going to be an interesting one to watch it unwind, but, um, but really, but yeah. Yeah. Anyways, we will, uh, if any major stuff happens, we'll, we'll keep on covering this in our news episode because again, the tallest building in Canada goes into receivership, not a great look. Um, but, uh, a lot more to come with that story. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.